Welcome to Soliquia Tempestiva, an occasional podcast series from the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, where we bring you talks about things that really matter. And at our home, the University of Portland, few things matter more than really exemplary teaching. And so today we've ventured out into our mobile studios to bring you a talk, a presentation by Dr. Lars Eric Larson, who is the most recent recipient of the Outstanding Teacher Award at the University of Portland. He is going to give a talk called Dialectical Teaching in a Righteous Age, an address he offered to the whole university community upon receipt of his award. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Lars Eric Larson, Extraordinary Professor of English at the University of Portland. Welcome, Lars. Thank you, Karen. This talk explores the problem of humanity's default self-righteousness and how one particular method of thinking practiced in classrooms and elsewhere might help free us. The epigraph that hangs over this presentation comes from my emeritus colleague, Lou Masson, who reminds us that, quote, Life is always contrapuntal, often gracefully so. Who am I to judge, asks the most powerful figure in the Catholic Church, in reply to a reporter's question about gay priests? Pope Francis surprised the world with his simple question, provoking far more discussion than volumes of answers would. Who am I to judge? The question's power comes from being so uncharacteristic of our time, In the 21st century, we've grown acclimated to self-righteous thinking. We're used to those in power maintaining their power by asserting it, not by inviting inquiry. We're habituated to non-compromise as a virtue, intractability as a sign of heroism. We expect to find righteousness among parents on the playground and wolves on Wall Street, in politics, pulpits, and public spaces, in many a congressional bicker and snarky tweet. And we are righteous ourselves about everything from how we brush our teeth to how the globe is run. To be sure, Pope Francis holds stable the beliefs of long-standing Catholic tradition. But his call for inquiry signals a remarkable invitation, a willingness to dwell in a place of humility regardless of his immense power, a perception of humanity that is radically democratic and horizontal an opening of the self to dialogue, regardless of one's most heartfelt positions. Who am I to judge echoes the lifelong motto of Renaissance essayist Montaigne, que je what do I know? A deliciously dual question that is both a shrug of humility, eh, what do I know? And a humanist call to reckoning, what do I know? In the face of our own various powers and convictions, these simple questions are remarkably hard to ask. And in our increasingly polarized worlds, we ask them less and less. In America, a notable shift from moderation toward polarity is largely of our own making. Bill Bishop's political study, The Big Sort, notes how over the past 40 years, Americans have self-sorted themselves into communities of sameness, deliberately moving to zip codes more ideologically and politically similar than ever before. With odd predictability, for example, American liberals cluster in densely populated locations, while conservatives distribute themselves in lower population areas. Such physical separation nurtures ideological separation. And we find a parallel phenomenon appearing in the new virtual real estate of social media, 
with its cloud-based neighborhoods of familiar-minded friends who like similar things. For all its expansion of our lives, social media is our newest gated community, holding us inside not by bricks and steel, but by our own attention spans, online reluctance to stray from those we regard as our people. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt finds such tribalism unsurprising, given the wiring of our brains. In his book from 2013, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, Haidt argues that righteousness, being moralistic, critical, and judgmental to the point of self-righteousness, is the normal human condition. As the mind relies on intuition far more than reason, we bind ourselves instantly with those who share our moral narratives. Haidt explains that the evolutionary advantage lies in the intense human bonding that righteous thinking cultivates in our groupish selves. But our tight in-groups come at the expense of those who think differently, leaving vast holes in our understanding. As a remedy to this default way of thinking, Haidt calls for more self-consciousness about our reactions, our bondings, and our attendant blindnesses. If we can't avoid being righteous, we can at least be more aware. But what about the fact that we're often righteous for a very good reason? We're right, and they're wrong. Perhaps we've spent a lifetime earnestly choosing and thoughtfully cultivating our values and beliefs, testing them year after year, and finding them solid, perhaps even on the right side of history. Many of these beliefs have become sacred to us, and it is indeed a sign of our integrity that we carry them steadfastly across a lifetime. Even so, our violent human track record and often delusional intuitions make it necessary to continue testing out our beliefs and listening to alternatives. For on a planet of over seven billion, who are we to judge? As Haidt remembers, quote, when I was a teenager, I wished for world peace, but now I yearn for a world in which competing ideologies are kept in balance, systems of accountability keep us all from getting away with too much, and fewer people believe that righteous ends justify violent means. Unquote. This wish for tension rather than peace goes against our nature. But in a post-9-11 world, it offers the prospect of decreased hatred, less violence, and more constructive interactions in our communities. Portland has two Lars Larsons. One has a political radio show that surely makes Rush Limbaugh proud, offering a deep red voice in a blue-hued city. The other, that's me, is a stereotypical, left-leaning, tofu-eating, godless humanities professor. While one Lars Larson show broadcasts to millions from a studio that literally keeps watch over Portland's left-leaning city hall, another at Oregon's Catholic University engages dozens of students in contemporary literature's feminist, Marxist, or postmodern ways of thinking. Our eponymous Scandinavian heritage aside, the two of us wouldn't exchange each other's lives for anything. With our opposed values, we Portland doppelgangers haunt each other like something out of an Edgar Allan Poe story. Still, we've come to maintain an open line of connection, one that started from the randomness of a misdelivered package which brought us to meet at a studio and correspond occasionally by email thereafter. This unlikely personal connection seems like a valuable opportunity for attentive exchange, even if we end up emailing a good number of barbs at each other's misguided beliefs. 
And it makes me think I should talk more frequently with others who think different to cultivate my conflict zones, especially since I derive so much comfort from my current think-alike cohort. I would love to be able to change Lars Larson's mind. And I found this hope of mind changing is possible through one simple mode of thinking, an exercise known as the dialectic. It's a mode for resolving human disagreements developed across time by various traditions. We see dialectical thinking at work in Hindu and Buddhist philosophies, in Heraclitus, Plato's Socrates, the Talmud, medieval Bethius, Hegel, Marx, and other continental philosophers. While these thinkers and traditions differ in their method, I think it's safe to use the most simplified version of Hegelian dialectics popularized by the equation thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis. That is, an argument set for a time in explicit conflict with its opposite can result in a more precise synthesis. Entertaining the opposite of what you believe is counterintuitive, for rather than defending your beliefs, it has you walk around in those of your enemy. And while this may feel like betraying your sacred causes, you're actually adding strength and sustainability to your beliefs. Pondering the antithesis makes you understand why people believe differently, and therefore perceive better strategies to change their minds. It offers the chance to set aside pride and concede to anything therein that you agree with. And it gives you the leisure to hammer out an even stronger framework for your belief. F. Scott Fitzgerald felt that the dialectic revealed a spark of genius when he claimed that, quote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Such counterforces act like the opposing blades of scissors shearing together. Make no mistake, dialectical thinking doesn't mean giving in or trying to achieve a 50-50 synthesis between your belief and its opposite. A synthesis can be 99% of your original belief, but it will be better and truer thanks to the 1% concession you've made amid dialectical ferment. It comes down to the difference between holding a belief so entrenched that it is beyond debate or even thought, and having one that is courageously open to discussion. The process is useful even in cases where the original thesis proves 100% true. Take something as non-negotiable as the theory that the Earth revolves around the Sun. The antithesis of this belief is that the Sun revolves around the Earth, which is flat-out wrong, so why bother pondering it? because it forces us to ask why people might think otherwise. And people do, because our sight insists on a circling sun. And our language confirms this when, long after Copernicus, we still say that the sun sets, and the sun also rises. So we might write the equation heliocentrism plus geocentrism equals the synthesis that the universe is heliocentric in spite of the illusions of our vision and language. And that synthesis helps us along the way become skeptical of vision and language. But wait a minute. I got sloppy with my thinking there. Is the universe heliocentric? Does the universe revolve around our sun? Once again, dialectics force us to be precise about our frameworks, 
prompting me to revise and say, planetary systems are heliocentric. So a dialectical synthesis, even in our most settled beliefs, helps remind us why people think otherwise, while exposing associated truths and forcing us to think more precisely than before. It brings us from a state of heliocentric cockiness to places of humility in our remaining ignorance. Does any one of us know what the galaxies revolve around? I don't. Like the tessellations of Dutch artist M.C. Escher, we see how things are given shape, form, and existence by their opposite, a visual endorsement of the need to understand our beliefs through their antithesis. For what is the use of the superego without an id to give it something to do? Where would Shakespeare's senseless royalty be without Shakespeare's sensible fools? And wouldn't conservatives be lost without liberals to serve a raw reminder of what they don't believe, and therefore give fresh urgency to what they do? Heaven's cold harps and wings are warmed by the hellish flicker below. Dialectical thinking also helps make it harder to fudge data, as I did on my 8th grade science fair project on ESP. My poster board display entered into San Diego's 1984 student fair registered a statistically significant incidence of extrasensory perception in my sample group of fellow middle schoolers. But in my research, I've been impatient in reaching my ambitious sample size. I also held a deep desire for a sixth sense to exist, along with UFOs and Sasquatch, to help enliven my increasingly rational, middle-class world. So I did what any zit-infested teen desperate for the world to meet his hungers would do. I cooked the books. My decision to fabricate half my test results arose from having no counter-voice to suggest that truth was far more important than the happy story that I wanted to tell. Well, it didn't take a sixth sense for the heads of the fair committee to recognize something odd about my data, and no honors crowned this project. Blame my transgression on the confused priorities of a young mind, but adults can fall short as well. As a recent New York Times article notes, the more passionate scientists are about their subject, the more vulnerable they are to skewing the data, whether consciously or unconsciously. Passion is a motivator and, alas, a liability. But the cool remove of the dialectic is one solution to such confirmation bias. Unfortunately, science involves a great many dialectical checks and balances thanks to its emphasis on reproducibility and its burden of proof, and likewise with our legal system. Newspapers stage dialectical thinking when they select a series of deliberately opposed letters to the editor. The tango of a thesis and its antithesis enlivens our lives with its percussive syncopation of thought. Thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis. It helps us move with more confident precision from opinion to belief. It allows families, cultures, and religions to alter their long-standing tenets when the pressure of new ethical paradigms makes it wise. The dialectical method keeps our ideologies in a state of blessed unrest. Fortunately, the university setting has long been a receptive space for dialectical thinking. And while in a nation of over 300 million, the mere 18 million undergraduates may seem relatively small, it's an army large enough to ignite a change if instructors cultivate dialectical habits of mind. 
In the classroom, righteous thinking looks like students and professors refusing to subject beliefs and ideas to negotiation. But as University of California President Clark Kerr insisted in the 60s, quote, the job of a university is not to make ideas safe for students, but to make students safe for ideas. Former Princeton President Robert Goheen asserts, quote, if you feel you have both feet planted on level ground, then the university has failed you. What our alma mater should have done, Goheen suggests, is knock us on our ass. For that is a useful elevation for cultivating receptivity. As my wife Molly Hiro tells her students, being in a place of uncertainty is not something to fear, it's something to achieve. The dialectic is one strategy for helping students reach such an accomplishment. So I'll end by offering a few ways I've tried to teach dialectical thinking in my literature classes at the University of Portland. On most days, I scrawl a series of contradictory quotations on the board, ones that both support and frustrate the day's lesson. For example, artist Georges Braque claims, quote, There is only one valuable thing in art, the thing you cannot explain. And that's a perfect quotation for when I pass out an assignment for them to explain a novel's art. Voices that go against my intentions force me to justify my pedagogy. They also invite the class to explore together why a task might be worth doing, even as we recognize the value in why someone like Brock would dismiss our framework. Great meta-discussions arise from the voices of a disruptive chalkboard. Certain visuals can foster the dialectical thinking process. I use the famous drawing of a simultaneous rabbit duck head, the image on your screen, to help students visualize how to aim for complexity in shaping an argument. A student's first glance at the work might yield the hasty interpretation, the image is a rabbit. True enough. But if we wrestle with the question, how is this not a rabbit? This dialectical invitation opens up all kinds of creative possibilities. It's ink on paper. It's an oval and two parallelograms. It's, oh, there's a duck looking leftward. Sorting through the responses, one can then articulate a better synthesis, as in, the image is both a rightward-facing rabbit and a leftward-facing duck, which is a richer interpretation than before. In a similar manner, René Magritte's cheeky image of a pipe with the cursive declaration beneath, this is not a pipe, will puzzle a viewer towards some kind of synthesis to resolve the paradox. I have students make a similar move, having them confront their working thesis with its opposite and journaling their way towards some kind of resolution. Since poems are also excellent vehicles for paradoxes, for impossible ideas that are somehow true, I have students explore the genre of poetry by analyzing what poets do with a tangled idea. Their papers demonstrate how a poem of their choice works through its antithetical components to reach a significant paradoxical truth about the world. One last example. I show literature students the short film Powers of Ten as an exercise in perspective. Made by Charles and Ray Eames, a couple best known for their mid-century furniture, the film takes the viewer on an exponential head trip upward from the hand of a sleeping picnicker into the deepest reaches of space. 
The second half of the film zooms downward through galaxies again to the level of the hand, moving deep into the subatomic level. I have the class wrestle with this nine-minute documentary and its two dialectical truths. One, the Copernican principle that we are not special in the universe. And two, the astonishing realization that entire universes exist within our very special bodies. It is deeply empowering to see the miraculous physics that occur within our skin, even as it's humbling to note how Earth isn't central to anything beyond our tiny orbit, our life-giving star middling and unremarkable amid the spawn of billions and billions of suns. This latter truth about our ordinariness is especially helpful for a generation of students whose shelves are crammed with trophies. But we need both narratives simultaneously to carry us through life with curiosity. As a community, UP can further encourage dialectical thinking through more team-taught classes, especially ones that feature the productive synergies of an odd couple. Think Felix Unger and Oscar Madison, Laurel and Hardy, Duff and Baston, Colmes and Butkus. The sheer theatricality of voices in dialectical conflict are enough to make students look up from their handheld devices. We can continue to host speakers who challenge the beliefs of our university or our city, or who are lightning rods of intelligent controversy within their own fields. We can spend less time in our classrooms performing knowledge and more time modeling curiosity. To help shape the next generation of prized journalists, lawyers, policymakers, parents, and citizens, universities need models of humility. And toward that end, we professors could think of ourselves not as learned people, but as learning people. Damn our degrees. There's new stuff to figure out, we should say to ourselves. Dialectical thinking is not the only strategy to help us retreat from the siren call of righteousness, but it does help shake us out of our stability to see further and better. Given my own ridiculously righteous mind, I have a lot to learn as a teacher and a lot more to do to implement dialectical thinking in my classes, to cultivate conflict zones, and to become more comfortable dwelling in doubt. But the syntheses we can achieve from a habit of opposing our most cherished theses just might help us get closer to truth, trust, and wisdom an unfrozen Congress, and a gracefully contrapuntal life. But then again, I could be wrong. Thank you, Professor Lars Eric Larson, for this glimpse into your prize-winning classroom. It's clear that things are flourishing on the bluff and that faith and reason and imagination as ways of knowing are alive and well.